Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 47. The crew is with you, Richard and Seth in attendance. Richard, how's it going? It's going great. How's everyone doing? Doing okay. Seth, how's it going, buddy? Going good. How are you guys doing? All right. Doing okay. All right. Uh, on the docket for this episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about the the leaks for Oath of the Gatewatch. Um, if anyone you know hasn't still been under a rock, uh, a lot of the a lot of leaks happened for Oath of the Gatewatch, and we felt we wanted to talk about it. Uh, we wanted to talk about uh, Trick Jarrett's uh, article on the homepage, and just kind of give our insight onto that. We will actually talk about the leaks. We kind of really discussed this going back and forth, whether we wanted to or not. Sometime, you know, in the past, we always like to wait until it's official. So we really discussed that. But ultimately, we wanted to talk about it for all of our listeners. We have a lot of fish mail to talk about. And um, yeah, let's just get right to it. So leaks in general, we will talk about the actual leaks. So I will open it up to just leaks in general. All three of us have been playing this game for quite a long time. Uh, so I wanted to kind of get everyone's thoughts on this, and we wanted to discuss it. So Richard, take it away. Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, someone had access to physical cards, and they leaked a bunch of cards. So I think it was all the Mythics, uh, all the Expeditions, or most of the Expeditions, and then some random dual deck cards as well. And I think this is the first time, since we've been doing the podcast at least, that there's been a major leak like this. Usually it's like a couple of cards, or it's a couple of cards like a day or two before they're going to be spoiled anyway. Uh, but this time, we got all the Planeswalkers, we got the Mythics, and personally, I, I feel it's not good. We kind of got our Christmas stolen, like, spoiler season's not going to be the same now, you know. There, there's a certain excitement to waking up every day, checking the Mothership, and seeing the new cards, and then having discussions uh, of those cards. And, you know, there's usually one good card every day, so there's a fairly meaty discussion about that card. But because we got slammed with all these spoilers, the discussion's kind of fallen by the wayside, uh, we'll still try to have it here, but it's it's just not the same. And the spoiler season coming up to Oath of the Gatewatch is going to be pretty boring now. We know all the cards, right? So there's nothing to look forward to. We're going to be looking for, you know, some hidden commons or something. And, you know, we're not going to be speculating about Planeswalkers anymore. So I think it's kind of bad. And I don't know why the person leaked it. You know, whoever leaked this probably has access uh, to the printers or, or something like that. They probably got some miscuts or something. Um, I'm not sure what they're goal was you know it, it's not for money or anything it was just posted randomly on image mirror they're not profiting for it but you know they decided to throw it out there for the community and uh i guess we got to kind of deal with it now seth go ahead well yeah we haven't had something like this happen since new phyrexia i believe when the godbook of the entire set was spoiled so this is definitely a unique situation to have so many cups spoiled at once and I agree with Richard. It is disappointing. It takes away from the fun aspect of having a card revealed each day or a couple cards and that suspense building up at what new cards are going to be in the set. So I definitely am disappointed by that. Like when you get all these spoilers of basically all the mythics and expeditions at once, it's kind of spoiler overload and it's, it takes away from the enjoyment of the season. Uh, Trick Jarrett, as Richard mentioned, published an article, and one thing that stood out to me, which I'm not sure on, the, I agreed with almost the whole article, but one thing he said that is a problem with leaks is that they create an unfair advantage uh, because they don't go out over official channels and they're not widely distributed to less enfranchised players 
So there's an unfair advantage for some players. And that was a little confusing to me. Like, his other points, uh, that Wizard spends a lot of time on this, building up the suspense, they create bad first impressions when the cards are spoiled all at once in this way. I agree with those, but the unfair advantage thing kind of stuck out to me as being something that was questionable. So I would like your guys' opinions on that. Do these types of spoilers create an unfair advantage? Uh, well, first I wanted to kind of talk... I, I'm going to answer your question, Seth, but in terms of leaks, call me veteran, but th this is something major, and th it hasn't been something... Like, these spoilers haven't been this major since you're right set the god book but we do still get spoilers and, and as i've played the game kind of spoilers are just you know before they are official uh has just been something that i've got i've grown accustomed to and, and i tweeted out a few things about that and kind of got really mixed reviews about that I, I understand some articles and some people who get these uh you know their articles are kind of ruined in terms of page views or you know what have you and i understand that uh, but it is something that everyone kind of has to accept as a risk of happening. Like, I understand maybe they didn't foresee like something like this happening, but spoilers before these actual articles and the official timing does happen frequently. And I don't know, I just kind of got used to that. So it doesn't really bother me in a huge way. Uh, in terms of the unfair advantage thing, I guess... I really posed a question back to uh, unfair to really who uh, is it is it unfair to see these way beforehand and you kind of get an anticipation of what what's good and what's not I, I guess because obviously you have them way before you know they're really supposed to be given out in terms of the pre-release and in terms of when you'll actually physically have them in your hand I guess it does because you know again you really just have them way before that so. I'm going to lean towards yes uh, to your question, Seth. It does. Yeah, I think it's unfair, but I don't think it's unfair in terms of competitive play. Like, you know, right. you'll get all the spoilers <laughs> before uh, you have to play your first Oath of the Gatewatch standard match. But I think Trick Jarrett's point was not everyone is on Reddit. Not everyone is following, um, you know, whatever account retweeted this on social media. If you're just following the official Wizards channel, you're not going to see these spoilers. And you're not going to know that Geist of St. Traft is being reprinted. And you might just go buy a playset, you know, right now at full, at full price. So in that sense, yes, you know, some people uh, will kind of get the uh, bad end of the deal because they didn't follow Reddit or whatever. Um, but in terms of competitive play and things like that, you know, th there is no difference. It's not like you're planning your limited decks already and stuff like that, right? I, and I mean, the old system, well, maybe it's still in place, but I know with the new Phyrexia incident, they were literally sending the entire set to different pros so they could write about them. But if anything, that seems like it would make competitive play more unfair to have select pros have the entire set two months before everyone else competing in the Pro Tour. Yeah, and, and for pro players, yeah. they're going to have this information. Like, it's not like they're not networked. Like, pro players will always get this, and it's really the casual players that don't get this. And in terms of competition, I don't know that it matters much for, for that group of people. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with what uh, Richard said. I mean, pros are going to have this. It, it does, I mean, in turn, do, it does create a kind of an unfair advantage but like Richard said the majority like every single person that plays magic will have these before you play uh your first limited and your first standard game so uh regardless of that you know you're gonna have these um but yeah I, I guess it's just the 
the quantity of what was spoiled is really getting to a lot of people that, uh, you know, if it was maybe like two or three cards, you know, okay. But this is like a lot of information coming out at once. And I guess that's why, you know, Trick Jared kind of had to write the article <laughs> because it was just so much at one time. And it, and it hasn't been this egregious since the God book. So I, I can understand a lot of people, especially uh, wizard officials being really kind of ticked off about this. But for the majority, I mean, it, it gives a lot of people like us, like everyone else, uh, stuff to talk about. And if you haven't seen them, then yeah, it is. it, it does kind of create that disparity there. One thing I did want to note was uh, vendors should be incredibly mad at this. Like Star City Games, yeah. kind of Fireball, uh, not because their articles are ruined, that's part of the problem, but uh, the pre-order hype will be dramatically reduced uh, because, you know, they're not going to list these cards until they're officially spoiled. And by then, people have heard of the card for, like, weeks, and there's not going to be that hype. Uh, if you remember Gideon from Battle for Zendikar, he was... He kind of fell by the wayside, even though he was officially spoiled, because he was overshadowed by the expeditions that weekend. And I feel right. like that's going to happen with basically every card here, because they're all kind of spoiled here to uh, not much fanfare. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Richard. Um, that that really does uh, affect the pre-orders, because I don't know if either of you have seen, uh, there there are already eBay listings, and it's kind of weird, because I don't know how many people are buying, because it's that 30-day period that's going to be you know if you if you don't you could easily get scammed but because like that 30 window period is going to close by the time the set's actually released but yeah these these stores are kind of on a set schedule uh star city games channel fireball these kind of big retail stores are on a schedule and it's not like they're going to suddenly put these up now so that does really create kind of this financial uh implication where how can you know with with people not that they may buy the, the these listings but they'll see like oh Nissa's twenty bucks or something like that or oh Chandra's twenty bucks or something like that and then as a few weeks go by what source are you gonna do like put it up for twenty five bucks like it, it's just kind of weird you're you're absolutely right Richard uh, it does create an issue Seth go ahead and and you can talk about that too yeah. <sighs> I don't know. The thing is, like, I can see both sides of it. It definitely hurts the big vendors like Star City Games and Channel Fireball because they're not getting their huge pre-release premium for their cards. On the other hand, it might be good for the players because they're not spending $200 on a playset in our set that everyone knows is going to be $10 in a couple months. So it's kind of (laughs) saving the players from themselves and not letting them make these bad financial decisions during pre-release period. So, so I don't know, it hurts the vendors, but it might be a good thing for the players in the long run. Yeah. You don't want to fall into that trap of what I tweeted out. Uh, I don't know if either of you saw that the, uh, the, uh, 200, the $400 expedition forbidden orchard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was ridiculous. How much is forbidden orchard normally? Like a, I don't even know, like a dollar. Oh boy. <laughs> it's like barely played in like anything. Vintage. Vintage. But, uh, oh yeah, totally. $400 expedition. <laughs> totally justified. But yeah, um, so is there anything really else uh, we want to say on that? I mean, if you haven't read the article on the mothership, you should definitely read it. Obviously, these leaks do affect specific people. So, again, we really had a long discussion about what we wanted to do. But obviously, you know, to be pertinent and for our listeners, we will give our take on the actual uh, leak stuff. But um, anything we want to wrap up about leaks in general? 
No, I mean, it kind of sucks. I, I think if we could go back, we would somehow prevent this from happening, but the cat's kind of out of the bag now, so we might as well yeah. discuss these cards with everyone right. else. Yeah. Right, and, and like I said, oh, yeah, go ahead, Seth. I just want to say, it seems like Wizards is taking this really seriously to try to keep this from happening again, to the point where they are threatening criminal prosecution uh, of the people that uh, perform these major leagues. I don't think this is, oh, someone... Uh, said they think this card might be in the set on MTG Salvation, but people that are mass leaking an entire set that they stole from the printers or uh, dumpster dive to pull out of the trash somewhere, it sounds like they're taking this seriously and really going to take some actions to try to keep this from happening again in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally understand. And, and like I said, I'm I'm just kind of a uh, I've played this game a long time. Uh, I've, I've kind of grown used to this and it just, it doesn't really affect me as much anymore. But I can totally agree and understand how it affects other people, and it really does suck for them. But in the meantime, we could talk about them. So Richard wanted, you, you know, you highlighted a couple of cards we wanted to talk about. Uh, we all agreed, so let's talk about them. All right, so we'll, we'll start with the Planeswalkers here. We got the new Chandra. Uh, Chandra's traditionally been a Planeswalker with really bad cards, so you guys tell me if this is good or not. Uh, Chandra Flamecaller. Four red red, so six converted mana cost planeswalker. Starts at four loyalty, uh, plus one, put two, three, one red elemental creature tokens with haste onto the battlefield. Exile them at the beginning of the next end step. Zero is discard all the cards in your hand, then draw that many cards plus one. And minus X, Chandra Flamecaller deals X damage to each creature. Interesting. What do you guys think? Well, it's not bad, but it's not great either. I mean, you obviously look at six mana and you kind of already have to compare it to Elspeth because that, you know, that card really kind of set the bar for six mana walkers. So I don't know if this is, I don't really know if this compare to Elspeth that was such a dominant force in standard. Obviously this might not see, this probably won't see play in any other format, uh, but you know, you, who knows, maybe you could kind of fit it into some crazy combo deck, but I doubt it. Uh, in terms of its abilities, obviously they're strong enough. The plus one's a little weird because they don't, you know, they don't stick around. They don't really have trample, uh, like these little ball lightning kind of uh, elemental tokens. So I don't really think that's any better than that. That's definitely not better than the Elspeth uh, abilities. It does, you know, Chandra does have a way to remove creatures with its minus X. And it does give you a way to draw some cards or, you know, discard a bad hand and, you know, start over. So that's pretty strong. As far as overall, I think it's okay. I don't know about you, Seth. Go ahead. Uh, for me, the problem is it's a six-mana Planeswalker that really doesn't do a good job of protecting itself. Like, yeah. It's negative X ability. It sort of protects itself but the problem is if you play it first of all if you're going to minus it immediately you can only kill things with up to four toughness so you're not going to get rid of a lot of the late game creatures or even mid game creatures that'll probably be on the battlefield by the time you play chandra and if you tick it down like x3 then you have a planeswalker with only one loyalty which dies to basically anything so if there's a world where a some sort of big red deck wants a four damage wrath card. Someone compared it to an overloaded Mizium Mortars, which yeah. it, ba it basically is. 
Uh, if there's a world where a deck wants that, it maybe we'll see play. And the zero draw a card ability is really strong. But I just hate that it's six mana and it doesn't really defend itself. Like Elspeth was so good because you would make those three tokens and it's so hard to kill the Elspeth. Chandra comes down and you either immediately put her to the graveyard to wipe the board or she's just completely open for an attack because those tokens don't stick around. So I'm yeah. afraid she's going to be six mana, do nothing too much of the time to really see play. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I was kind of leaning towards that too, but I wanted to be <laughs> a little less, uh, at least a little bit optimistic. But yeah, ultimately, I, I can't really endorse this card either. I At first glance, without playing it, that's that's kind of what I'm leaning to, Seth. And yeah. the, the one one last thing, and then I'll let you go, Richard. The thing is, it's six mana, and her abilities are very aggressive, and I don't think the decks that would want two hasty 3-1 elementals are going to be getting to six mana often enough to take advantage of Chandra. That's, like, the other big problem for me. Like, the ability, six power with haste is awesome, but what kind of aggressive red deck is going to have six mana to even cast Chandra? Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, Seth took the words out of my mouth. It's, it's literally, like, a big red uh, Planeswalker, it's a very aggressive six drop, which only certain decks want that. Like all, like if you think about it, plus one does six damage on an empty board. That's that's a lot of hasty damage, and zero draws a lot of cards. But there's no way to protect uh, herself. Her her minus does not really do that good of a job, given that we're in the world of four mana five fives. Uh, but you know, it, to me, it's kind of like a big cough or something. Like this is for aggressive red decks. So if there was some kind of ramp deck, maybe a Jun deck. This could be a, a top curve, but you know, wouldn't you rather just play Ugin for one more mana? Um, or uh, you know, you could play a Tarka. There, there's a lot of finishers in red right now, so this one's suspicious. But that zero, I think, is deceptively powerful. I think being able to dump your hand and drawing uh, those cards back plus one uh, will lead to a lot of shenanigans. So it'll be interesting to see if there's some kind of deck dedicated around Chandra, but. So far, I think I'm with you guys. She's kind of just meh and not too exciting. Yeah. Uh, this one is an exciting Planeswalker, I think. Nissa, Voice I'm, of Zendikar. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited because this was a three converted mana cost Planeswalker. So one green green. Uh, it's Nissa, and she starts at three loyalty. Uh, plus one is put a zero one plant creature token onto the battlefield. Her minus two is put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control. And minus seven is gain X life, draw X cards, where X is the number of lands you control. Yeah. So I know, like, Seth and I are, you know, we talk about finance a lot. I would be very surprised if this wasn't, like, the chase mythic of the set that commands the highest price in the set. Uh, you know, starting off and going forward. Um, it might actually be, you know, it might actually lend itself this Nissa to, you know, do the Gideon effect, where it might even start off, like, around 20, you know, 20 bucks or so, and then go up to like maybe 30, 35 because it's just that good. Uh, I'm very excited. I love green. <laughs> That's uh, been uh, pretty well known uh, throughout the podcast as we've gone along, but uh, a three mana walker already lends itself to see play potentially in any other format. So that's already good. Uh, kind of like it might not, obviously there's always that chance like the Domri raid uh, doesn't really see play, but it always has that chance to always come back. But its its abilities are really good. I mean, it protects itself. It has the chance to uh, buff the green plant creatures that it produces, and the ultimate is just very good. That is very a uh, very good ultimate to build towards. So all three of the abilities on this are really good, and um, it's in a 
it's in a color that could really support it. Uh, the only downside is it's going to be competing with the Origins Nissa uh, Flipwalker, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, Seth, go ahead. Well, it's funny you brought up Gideon, because I think if Gideon Alley of Zendikar cost three mana and was green, it would be Nissa. Like, the comparison yeah. is is really similar. Like, you can put a token into play, you can pump your entire team plus one, plus one. That's basically exactly what Gideon does. Like, Gideon's token's a little better. For him to pump your team, you basically have to sacrifice to Gideon. But there's a lot of similarities between the two, so I'm really excited that they are on curve with each other and for the potential of a crazy, like, Abzan or green-white tokens deck that's taking advantage of both of these Planeswalkers that can buff the team really quickly and deal a lot of damage really fast. Yeah, it seems really good with Secure the Waste, uh, and yeah. that'll be around for a while. Go ahead, Richard. You guys are really high on Nissa. I'm not so I'm not so jolly with her. I think she's good in aggressive decks, but I don't think she's as good as Gideon. Like the zero one plant token does nothing, right? It's a chump block. It's the same as uh, a tap down ability or like say Jace's plus one. It slows down their attack, but you're not making any progress. At least a two two knight can actually kill something. And the minus two requires your creatures to be on the board already. It's not an anthem. It's just uh, you know, counters. So if you put down a Nissa and you're not able to cast creatures and it dies, you get no value from the minus abilities. So I, I think it will work in go wide strategies, uh, token strategies, like you guys mentioned, uh, a very aggressive decks, but I don't think she's like Gideon or Jace where if you're playing these colors, just slam her in. I think she needs, you know, a certain type of deck around her. And so I think she's good, but I don't know that she'll be you know, dominant and standard like Gideon or Jace currently uh, are. I think if it was any other Planeswalker that could be in that same category, it's definitely this one. Uh, that's for sure. But yeah, Seth did mention yeah. like this, these do curve right into each other and quite nicely, actually. Um, so that is going to be something to watch. Uh, obviously, you know, Jace is Jace. Um, it kind of has a lot more utility. But, I mean, this this walker is pretty self-sufficient in terms of, I think it really could go into a lot of decks. I don't know how it's going to um, kind of combat, you know, that slot with the other Nissa. But, I mean, if, if, if nothing else, it could just, its own abilities play with each other. So, you don't really have to invest that much more into it. But would you and, play Nissa in a ramp or a control deck? No. Uh, you I really know, wouldn't, right? Whereas Jace and Gideon, you kind of would, right? And you would play them as a top end in an aggro deck, you know, whether it's a go wide or even like a um, like a heroic type deck where you're all in one creature. Like, those guys go in every single deck. Whereas Nissa, I think, only goes into aggressive decks. Yeah. So, would you actually play her in a ramp or control deck? Maybe not like a straight up control deck, but um, see... Well, I like think super that, friends maybe like one of those. Yeah, types. like I think maybe a ramp deck can incorporate her in the sense that um, this kind of curves into a from beyond. But I don't know. I mean, you, you're really kind of just you have one a one track mind in a ramp deck, and that's to just get into your top end stuff. And maybe this might be a little too cute for that. But if anything, it I mean it just clogs up the board, it stalls the board for you. But uh, from beyond really does that too. So I don't know how really that will end up working. And some ramp decks don't even play from beyond, so I don't know. But overall, I mean, I really do like her. Uh, I think she's really strong. And uh, like I said, I mean, if you compare it to a lot of the other cards that we've seen uh, and the Mythics, I mean, other than Mirror Pool, which uh, 
myself and Seth have really given high praise. Um, this is really strong and a lot stronger than the other mythics. At least we can agree on that. You, you just uh, we, got, wanna... we got some strong mythics coming up, though. <laughs> we just you never want to underestimate three mana planeswalkers. Like that's one thing that we've learned yeah. is like across the history of Magic, almost every single three mana planeswalker has been at least playable and usually very good. There are not very many bad three mana planeswalkers. So just that gives me hopes that Nissa will be at least pretty good in standard. Yeah. What about modern? Any hopes for modern for Nissa here? Well, I think this really plays well with Bitter Blossom. So uh, you can really flood the board with a lot of tokens, uh, kind of like a junk or, you know, a rock, like, tokens list. I it, mean, it's, yeah, also, it's also sweet with, like, Kitchen Finks is, uh, like, a Gavany Township, a way to reset the, the counter on Kitchen Finks and let it live again with the negative two ability. Uh, I'm not really high on her in Modern, but I think that there might be an outside chance that she sees play. Yeah. Yeah, if I open Anissa, I'm throwing her into Jund, just <laughs> for kicks and giggles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I tend to do that with all the new cards, uh, but whether it's optimal or not, it's probably not. But there, there's an outside shot. Like, the plus one, plus one counter breaks a lot of mirrors, like the Tarmogoyf mirror, the Tassiger mirror, and things like right. that. So, some value. And, you know, chopping a Tarmogoyf is pretty good. So, uh, yeah. moving on, we have another Mythic. So, when when you ask what the best Mythic is, I think... I thought of this card. Uh, Kozilek's Return, two and a red. It's an instant, uh, Devoid. Kozilek's Return deals two damage to each creature. When you cast an Eldrazi creature spell with converted mana cost seven or greater, you may exile Kozilek's Return from your graveyard. If you do, Kozilek's Return deals five damage to each creature. Yeah, so Richard, um, you really do like this card and um this is probably your pick for the best mythic yeah this card seems really dumb if there's a ramp deck <laughs> this is like how do you win <laughs> you cannot win you need yeah. to play counter spells and oops there are no counter spells <laughs> yeah well <clears throat> you can't counter that ability right that second ability <clears throat> no i mean what i meant was in general the way you beat ramp is either you go under them with aggro decks or you play an even bigger deck, which is typically a control deck with counter spells. Right. And this kind of just removes the aggro option. Yeah. Right? It gives and it also... Iroplasm, and then that's, you know, stabilization spell number one. And then when you cast your actual creature, you get another Wrath. So, you know, when you're playing against an aggro deck, if you get two Wraths on one card, is that a good thing or not? And that just oh, seems certainly good. broken. Right? Yeah, it also, it also kills, like, all the control creatures, too, when you really think about it. The current ones, right? The good ones, like Ojutai, stuff like that. So mostly, I mean, your creatures in a ramp deck aren't ever going to get killed by this, and it kills anything that you could really, I mean, you could really even think of. Kills rhinos, kills uh, Ojutais, kills basically everything. But, I mean, obviously, rhino won't be around too much longer, but still kills basically, like, everything. Um, does this have a good chance of seeing play outside standard, Richard? Because I immediately huh? thought Tron. I think, I don't know, because two is a really bad number in modern. It doesn't yeah. kill the coddles, right? But it does kill goblin guides. It does kill uh, unpumped swift spears. But usually you want your sweepers to be at three. Like, a lot of people play uh, Anger of the Gods over a Pyroclasm. They pay one more mana just because that one extra 
uh, power is very important. So I don't know. I, I think people will experiment with it, and I think it might see play somewhere, but two versus three is a big deal in modern, I yeah. think. And the thing with, uh, I guess, Tron is there really aren't that many Eldrazi creatures in the deck as opposed to just big seven mana stuff like Karn, uh, Ugin, and uh, um, Wormcoil Engine. Sorry, go ahead, Seth. Uh, well, two things. First off, I think the card is super nuts, and I think it can see play in modern, and I don't know, like, there's some appeal even in older formats. It it has to void, so this kills uh, Mother of Runes, giving creatures protection, Mirian Crusader, any, like, creatures that have a protection from red, which would normally, uh, Core Firewalker in modern is a big one. Like, there's there's creatures that this gets around that um, other pyroclasm effects would not get around. Right. So I, th- I think, for me, the way to evaluate it is as a three-mana instant speed pyroclasm that gets around any protection effects, and I think that's a pretty good card. Like, even if you're not playing an Eldrazi deck, I could see there being decks that just want the first part of the ability, the Devoid Instant Speed Pyroclasm. So I I think there could be decks that want it just because of that. Right, I mean, and you never know. I mean, with this much... Uh, I mean, we haven't seen the whole set, but Red Green Tron could actually just straight up change as a deck, like, uh, and in terms of what it wants to be doing. And, you know, you don't know, maybe they do incorporate more Eldrazi, like, uh, Kozilek or at least Ulamog or something like that. Uh, you have Mirror Pool, you have Kozilek's Return, so maybe Red Green Tron just turns into, like, Tron Eldrazi, so, uh, that's entirely possible. I, I gotta get your guys' opinion on one more thing, though. This card actually makes me pretty mad because it is a mythic pyroclasm. Like, yeah. utility cards are the very definition of what is not supposed to be a mythic rare. Am I off my rocker, or is this really a stretch to be a mythic rare instead of a rare? I think, I mean, so if anyone didn't read your article, uh, you wrote one a while back about mythics. In terms of the original intent of a mythic, no. But in today's standards, yes. I think this could be. I think this is fine as mythic because if nothing else, I mean limited. If this was at rare, I mean this is kind of nuts. I mean, uh, we got but, pyroclasm. We got pyroclasm at uncommon and limited. Yeah, but pyroclasm's never going to be an instant, and it never can trigger twice. Like this, this triggering and can't be like it can't be countered from the uh, graveyard. Uh, it, it works with uh, Eldrazi. I think that part alone makes it mythic because um, that's that's really ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know that it's that broken and limited because you're gonna have a lot of creatures That's true. that are gonna die. <laughs> so it's a bit harder to use in limited, I think. Uh and is it a May ability? It's a May ability. Okay, so you can choose not to wrath your own board. Uh but I think I agree with Seth. I think the second ability is what makes it unique and kinda mythic y, but it's still just a pyroclasm. Like Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's like the one mana eight eight vanilla creature is that mythic <laughs> like, I, I guess right but yeah. it's not very special um but seth brought a very good point about dodging protection uh what, what's the card in affinity Edge champion that's right? champion that yeah. causes headaches for a lot of people and this just goes right around that right so yeah uh, now that seth phrased it like that you know three mana instant speed power clause and it gets around protection yeah you, maybe you don't even need the second clause <laughs> maybe you can just use that that's good enough <laughs> Yeah, but that, that that definitely wouldn't be just mythic. <laughs> so the second part, like, is probably why it's mythic. Yeah. Yeah, because that could definitely be an uncommon if that was just the first part. Uh, but no, maybe just a rare. I don't know. Just because it's instant. I don't know. All right. And we also got some expedition. So just naming some off. Tech Edge, Forbidden Orchard, 
Uh, we got all the what do you call them? The filter lands, the like filter lands. Yep. Graven Cairns, Cairns. I, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Sorry. Graven Cairns, Firewood <laughs> Thicket, Bastion. Yeah. Uh, Twilight Mire. Uh, we got yeah. an actual wasteland as opposed to wasteland. Uh, yeah. Mana confluence. Interesting. We got strip mine. Interesting. I have. Yeah. So what do you guys think and, about these like strip mine things? You know, it's like a I mean, dollar card. And here we are putting it as an expedition. Yeah, uh, Modern Masters 2015 was merely a uh, setback. So we're we have I have Ugin again. So, <laughs> so. I don't know if many, many people get that reference, but uh, in terms of the expeditions, really, I, I don't know, Richard. It's the big the big ones, Wasteland, obviously, and Ancient Tomb. Those are obviously going to be coveted by legacy players, right? But I don't really even know because aren't there, I mean, there's a lot of Wasteland uh, printings now. Uh, these are not the most pimp, I don't think. There are a lot of promo wastelands yeah uh yeah so i don't i don't know that you would use this i guess you could use this this ancient tomb but you'd have new border cards with your old border cards and i don't know if people find that acceptable yeah. <laughs> um okay so just off the bat um just for anyone that doesn't know i have uh two degrees uh, as an art major and Aside from the the, I really love the art on the filter lands. There's a lot of good composition in there. There's a lot of good you know usage of color. Uh, I, I really do like those. But then we get to the other half of the expeditions, and maybe the the camera or the lighting is not really doing these justice justice rather. Uh, but a lot of these just seem really bland. Like if you were to take your hands and just you know, cover the the text and the frame of the card. A lot of these really look the same. I mean, like Strip Mine, Dust Bowl, Wasteland, Horizon Canopy. You know, they're just very, really bland. They're devoid of color. Maybe that's just a direction of Battle for Zendikar, but specifically Dust Bowl and Wasteland. I mean, those are really, really similar and just not very appealing. Well, uh, I have Ugin's fine. Confluence is really fine, but yeah, just a lot of them are just bland and i don't really know how tech edge got in there that's the most egregious one to me uh but and Corehaven largely but i guess i mean it fits into the uh zendikar lore but i mean other than the filter lands um these aren't really that appealing to me i mean that just means they did a good job right dust bowl and wasteland are basically the same card so if they look the same right that's a good thing right and at the, most of the cards you named are the ones that produce colorless mana. Uh, not a lot you can add to this. It's just going to be like gray hedrons <laughs> sitting around. Well, I mean, you, Ancient Tomb is the same. It produces colorless, and they were, there's definitely like a good composition there. There's some color in there. There, you know, there's at least it's something to look at. It's interesting, right? Like Wasteland is just like what I mean. What are we really looking at? We're, it's just a shot of just some dirt and this Eldrazi crud. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I felt like the Judge promo, I mean, that's definitely something to compare it to, and that looked really good. I don't really know about this. So they should just put money signs, like, in the dust. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean... Salty tears. <laughs> I don't know. You play Legacy more than me. I mean, does this look better than any of the other Wastelands? I mean, even the original Wasteland is kind of... You know, you look at it, there's a lot of great, you know, grayscale, a lot of brown, but there's at least something going on there, you know? At least there's something to look at here. It's like, what is, it's just like nothing inspiring. Yeah, I'm just giving you a hard time. I agree with you. I think, no, I yeah, think we, I we've had, 
we've had this discussion before with the original expeditions where things like Temple Garden, like where right. where where is the you know the yellow and the blue? It's it's like weird. It's like they're nice pieces of art, but they don't fit the theme. So yeah, and like you said, if you just cover, if you just took the pieces of art and try to assign a name to them, you're gonna have a pretty rough time. But right, I, I don't know. There's only so many ways you can draw various lands. <laughs> I think they're starting to run out. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, because again, these could just be like generic basic lands. I mean, really, this could be art for like generic basic lands. So I don't know, Seth. What do you think? Uh, well, I'm not an art guy, so I'll stay out of that part of the conversation. Although I think sure. the, the ancient tomb is pretty sweet. I do like the art on that one. Yeah, I, I like it. ancient tombs. Fine. Um. As far as actual card choices, I don't think it's that bad. Like, for what they're doing and what they had left to choose from, I think the choices are mostly fine. Wasteland's obviously good. Ancient Tomb's good. If you're going to look at the land cycles that were available, the Filter Lands is probably the best option. What I'm really questioning, though, is why maybe they wouldn't split up the fetches and the shock lands or something and have one or even the the enemy fetches and the ally fetches and have some really chase cards in Oath and some in Battle for Zendikar because yeah. we're with this like really top-heavy set of expeditions here. At least in Battle for Zendikar, if you open an expedition, you were pretty sure you were getting a really good card unless you hit one of the Battle for Zendikar duels, which were only five out of the 25. In the Oath expeditions, what do you have? Like Wasteland, maybe Ancient Tomb, and then a bunch of cards that are arguably worse than Shocks as far as value is concerned. Yeah, um... I agree with you, Seth. It's very top-heavy now in, in this set. And I was kind of, like, whenever we talked about expeditions in the past in terms of a financial perspective, uh, I always kind of really added the caveat to see what we would get in Oath of the Gatewatch as maybe a way that might distract people from uh, the first set. And I got to tell you, I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, the first set of expeditions is definitely still where you want to be. Um Overall, I think it's okay, but there's some really, I mean, stinkers in here. I mean, Forbidden Orchard looks great, and I like it, but it's just not an expedition. No one, like, I don't think a lot of people would like to open that one. Tectonic Edge is the most egregious one. Core Haven's all right. Eye of Ugin, I mean, has been worn out. <laughs> it kind of overstayed its welcome. <laughs> it just had a reprint in Modern Masters 2015, so, I mean, I guess it's pertinent to the Zendikar lore again, but... I don't know how some of these made it over some really prime candidates. Yeah, so just in terms of, like, what they could have included better, I mean, there was still a good amount of selection out there. So, I mean, overall, I'm going to agree with you, Seth, that this is fine. But I just, you know, Tectonic Edge really just being the one that's most egregious to me. Uh, I think that it would have been interesting to see some of the original Zendikar creature lands or, you know, something like Dark Depths or something that really needed a reprint. So we, I think we're missing one. It's going to be Flooded, Flooded Grove, the Filterland, the blue-green one. But uh, I'm really, I'm kind of shocked to see Firelit Thicket did not make it, but Can Horizon Canopy did. I think Grove of the Burnwells would have been a really good one to print. But that's my take on it. I don't know if you guys have anything really left to say about these expeditions. Overall, they're fine, but nowhere near the, the first round. And like you said, Seth, I mean, there's definitely some really good chances to miss on these. Whereas uh, in Battle for Zendikar, I mean, if you open up a, an expedition, you have a pretty good shot at getting something worthwhile. I mean, even the Zendikar lands themselves, the, the battle lands, 
are still a lot better than some of these, like, Core Haven, Ayabugan. I, I mean, I'd rather, like, a few Cinder Glades or something like this over that. At least, like, those have some appeal in another format. Yeah, yeah I mean, go ahead, Richard. Oh, I agree with you. There, there are some cards, uh, you know, Mutavault, Inkmoth Nexus, that, you know, I think should have been here. Uh, Grow of the Burn Willows, you mentioned, the Creature Lands, uh, even something like Valakit. Like, those are pretty iconic cards, so I think they could fit in here. Uh, there's some older cards, which might be reserve list, which I can't remember. Like, I think Tabernacle is definitely reserve list. Yeah. Uh, what about, what <laughs> yeah. about Caracas? Is Caracas reserve list? I don't believe so, because it's an uncommon oh. for some unknown reason. Uh, Rashad and Poor? I know there's a judge promo, but that may have been the time where they accidentally made some reserve list judge promos. <laughs> uh, Dark Depths, is that reserve list? No. No? Yeah, there, there are some powerful yeah. older lands that don't show up here. So, you know, Tech Edge, I can understand. At least Tech Edge is actually a staple of modern, but Eye of Ugin. Poor uh, Haven. I don't know. I, I don't know about. Orchard. You know, or even just seeing Tron. Like the Tron lands here would be pretty sweet. Yeah. The port is not on the reserve list. Yeah, and so, neither is Caracas. So they could have packed a lot of value in here, you know, to kind of open the. Or, you know, get your hopes up for opening packs and getting a chase expedition. Uh, I know I opened a lot of Battle for Zendikar uh, packs for no reason, just to try to open an expedition. Uh, and I got a Godless Shrine, so I was kind of happy. But I don't know about Oath. I don't know if I'm going to be opening packs. I think I'd rather just take store credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and stuff. The, these yeah. expeditions don't excite me as much. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The the foil wastes uh, the actual, like, basic lands themselves are really nice and in terms of like i don't know what you feel seth but in terms of a financial implication i think those are definitely worthwhile yeah they actually confirmed that they would not be something that was printed in every set and they might have said they're not something they're planning on printing again so uh there's definitely some long-term potential there if that's not going to just be like a basic land that you're going to open uh in every pack so yeah in particular like you said are really good targets i had a twitter conversation with uh trick jerry and these won't be going forward but the symbol obviously will be like waste is not something we'll see frequently yeah my my speculation is cards that used to produce colorless will now produce a new symbol and that will go into all sets but cards that actually require the waste mana like kozilek that's only for this set that's my speculation going forward yeah maybe i mean if it's going to open up design space for them like they've been touting this whole time i would find it kind of you know awkward if we never saw the uh if we never saw the symbol again. Well, it would be like, flat, you know, whenever they want to bring it back for a certain block for storytelling right. reason, okay, yeah. rather, you know, yeah. rather than canning it forever, but I don't think it's going to be very common, the, the cards right. that consume that mana. Yeah. And I actually saw a Twitter conversation with, I don't remember who in specific, but a, a Wizards employee on that, and I, it might have been Merrill on his blog, actually, that said the diamond mana symbol is the new thing that'll be in every set, but the actual colorless cost of cards is a sometimes thing that, like you said, Richard, will only be for blocks or for sets where it fits into the theme somehow. So it will come back, but it's not going to be every set. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just a quick aside before we move into fish mail and stuff. Um, the last cast was uh, recorded and published like before that whole thing went on when they kind of released uh, Kozilek on the official Twitter. So... Yeah, Richard, you posted a really good kind of summary of how the new colorless mana will work. 
Uh, so I urge all of our listeners to go read that. And if you have any additional questions, obviously you can always comment. Yeah, Seth, it's kind of what we thought. I, I brought it up that to say, you know, maybe really like my biggest pet peeve was the introduction of this mana. But after talking, like, I do understand like that after a while, it'll you know, everyone will kind of just get used to it. But it was like a really weird timing. Uh, and that's kind of what I relate to uh, Jarrett. And, um, you know, I, you know, mentioned that to Matt Tabak as well. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so that article I posted, which thoroughly explained how colorless works, I shared this with Seth and, it, uh, Seth, and it went into his subsequent article, but that Facebook thread was so many confused people. Yeah. Like, literally in the comments of the article that explained how colorless works, no one knew how colorless worked. <laughs> and yeah. I was just like... Man, but I, I think it was to be expected. I think once people wrap their heads around it, and I think once we're uh, a block into the future, so we don't have a standard with mixed symbols, I think new players will find it easy and intuitive. But in the yeah. new, everyone's just running around confused. And yeah. I, I want to hear from some judges from the first uh, game day or the first uh, pre-release event. <laughs> yeah. How many judge calls? Because people don't know what their mana symbols do anymore. <laughs> yeah, and that was largely, I mean, um, you know, just one of the comments. We weren't really kind of overreacting, but um, to them, I mean, it kind of... See, the thing is, they, they've they been privy to this for a long time, and I think they really kind of forget that. Like, Trick Jarrett, Tayback, Marrow, they've all seen this symbol for a long time already, and everyone's just kind of seeing it for the first time. So I, I get that, you know, going forward it'll get easier, but for I, it was just kind of interesting because... Um, you know, they figured everyone was just kind of, you know, just going to get it just like that. But clearly a lot of people didn't. And uh, that's really the only thing we were discussing last cast is that uh, there will be a lot of confusion. And obviously there was. So probably probably the best example of how wizards might just overlook that because they're so used to it was Ian Duke spoiling Kozilek, or Kozilek on the stream, and he literally forgot to mention the colorless mana symbols. Like, he talked about the card and the abilities, <laughs> and it wasn't until, like, Rich or someone reminded him, hey, there's these, like, diamond mana symbols, what do those do? That he was like, oh, yeah, and actually, like, explained <laughs> <laughs> explained what they were and what they did. See, and, you know, that's really what I reiterated to them uh, when I had these conversations over Twitter. I'm like, you know, you guys have been privy to this for a long time. Everyone kind of hasn't. So that obviously <laughs> reflected in Ian Duke's uh, explanation. Because for them, it's normal, right? I mean, they've been, they've been seeing this for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that kind of wraps up uh, everything. Uh, if you want to see the spoilers, they're out there. Richard, you'll probably put them up at some point. Yeah, I know you've been kind of thinking about when to kind of put those up, but uh, we talked about them. They're out there. You can see them for yourselves. Uh, and we just kind of wanted to highlight a couple cards, at least to just talk about them. Uh, but we will be talking about them uh, more in the future and definitely, obviously, during spoiler season. But let's get to some fish mail. We have another great round of fish mail. Thank you for every, uh, thank you everyone for sending these in. These are really great. So take it away, Richard. All right. We have Hans from Austria via email. Uh, I have a feeling I simply can't win the race against the Wizards printer at this point. Uh, dual decks, event decks, new commander products every year, modern masters, throw in sets like conspiracy and expeditions, dropping prices to the lowest levels. I totally see the benefits for the community, and especially newer players, but I feel my rewards for being aware of the market and acting thoughtfully are reduced with the flood of products from Wizards. Uh, just for example, take Geist of St. Traft. Are we headed into a future where MTG Finance will only have implication 
for cards during their time in standard, uh, exceptions like Baby Jace aside, and be virtually worth nothing afterwards with somewhat valuable modern cards being in danger of a reprint at any point in time. I've been saying this for a long time. The game is definitely changing, uh, whether you want to accept it or not. This is definitely something myself and Seth have talked about on numerous, numerous occasions, that reprints are becoming a lot more rapid. Uh, We're getting into a more rapid block cadence where some of these reprints are obviously going to be as well. And uh, it's just really um, something that, you know, people who are in the finance aspect of this game or, you know, who run stores or what have you, you kind of have to really adapt to. Um, And I don't think it's like doom and gloom uh, overall, but uh, there's definitely some things that you will have to adapt to uh, as someone, you know, as people are into this side of the game. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's doom and gloom either, but like you said, uh, it's not that MTG Finance is dying or it's going to be standard only. It just needs to be approached differently. The old model of uh, buy a card at rotation and hold on to it for five years for when it sees extended play or modern play or EDH play, like that model doesn't work anymore because the odds of reprinting are so high that that's unlikely to be successful. Like like the, the... a poster said or the commenter said that that does happen. Those cards do see reprinting and it does kill the values. So I think that MTG finance is moving more in a direction where you're going to have to be working on a timetable that's six months or a year playing things like modern season, uh, pro tours coming up, things like that, that are short term, like seasonal influences rather than this long-term hold a good card for five years and wait for it to slowly grow year over year. Yeah. Now, that, that's not to say it's gone away, because in lieu you know, of all these reprints and dual decks and supplemental products, they have given out... I mean, obviously, you've seen these with Expeditions. So now there's something kind of new to uh, you know, sate that uh, kind of hunger of, well, I just want something that I can buy and hold on to for a long time. And that kind of fills that role. But I totally agree with you, Seth. Um, It's definitely a new kind of timetable where, you know, seasonal influences are going to be a lot, you know, you you kind of have to follow those and those will be more impactful. Uh, Pre-order time uh, will definitely become uh, a lot more interesting in terms of, you know, how cards are evaluated right away. Uh, We saw this kind of with Gideon. And yeah, like, like, like you said, um, you know, the trend of kind of holding these for five years, these super long-term things are, you know, might not have as much appeal if you want to be uh, on a different kind of timetable where you're kind of grinding out a little more value on a on these kind of seasonal things. Yeah, and so the, the TLDR here is, uh, yes, Wizards prints older cards aggressively. I think yes. Seth wrote an article where he went through each of the sets and figured out uh, what percentage of the expensive cards were reprinted, and uh, it was a large percent. And it seems like Wizards will continue to do this. Things like, uh, what, what was that card? The Gain Life card. Fellow Deer Sovereign. They, they get yep. reprinted and bumped down in rarity with regularity. So holding and modern yeah. is going to be tough. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely still, you know, there's definitely still opportunities there. Like, even with rim pr- reprints, some of these cards do bounce back um maybe not towards the original peak but there is uh some great opportunities like like a splinter twin or something like that where when it was originally when it was first reprinted you know you had a chance to get them pretty cheap and they have come back a little bit so you do kind of have those margins 
but yeah, I, I totally agree with what Seth and, and what Richard has, have been saying. They are really aggressive with these reprints now. Not all reprints are created equal. There's a huge yeah. difference between like Modern Masters reprinting and being printed in a dual deck, for example. One has like a huge supply and is going to crush the value of whatever's in it, which the, the commenter mentioned Geist of St. Traft, which probably will be basically worthless for several years at least, uh, since it's going to be showing up in a dual deck shortly, uh, thanks to those spoilers. But something like Modern Masters isn't going to kill the value of a card, and those prices will rebound because... It's not adding that much to the supply, and at least in theory, it's drawing more people into the game to buy those cards and play those formats. Yeah, and, and, a, and a, sorry to, I mean, this was just a large question. There are always going to be little nuances, too. Like, uh, if these reprints have worse art, or they, you know, people tend to gravitate towards the older frame, or something like that. So there are some still nuances that um, you should follow as well like uh me personally i like the original guys of saint draft art um and not the two promos but you know i'm just one person so i mean obviously some cards will be more affected about you know from that than others but you know after a while after so many reprints that kind of just goes out the window anyway uh but for a first time reprint you know like thought seas or something like that um that does still play a factor so um yeah i I think you are overreacting in terms of, you know, again, we're trying to tell you it's not really doom and gloom. Uh, just kind of change your um, approach to this, like Seth said. And I think um, between what Seth and I discuss, um, you know, it might be better to, you know, change uh, what you're holding on to. All right. So that was from Hans from Austria. Next up, we have at Tom Simmons on Twitter. Time to sell Juzam, uh, I, I assume Juzam the Jin, and buy Legacy Staples, or does Old School have more room to run? Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> more Old School questions. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I see them go up on stocks, and, I mean, it's hard for me not to say look at them, but, I mean, really, uh, I don't know for how much longer it'll be a thing. I mean, obviously, people don't really want to hype this and it's kind of like a <laughs> unwritten code to try and not hype this. But I mean, if you like it or if you feel like it's time to sell out, I mean, obviously you're already getting uh, a considerable amount of gains on these. So I really wouldn't blame you to sell them. Uh, I don't really understand if you want to keep holding them to play them. Obviously that would be a reason to hold it, but I mean, to eke out a little bit more kind of seems nonsensical because you're already sitting on quite a good amount of gains if you've had these for uh, a long period of time. I don't know. What do you think, Seth? <laughs> yeah, they've basically, yeah, they've basically doubled in the past six months, uh, Juzam in specific, and it has a pretty strong buy list price at the moment. So while there's a chance that they keep growing, I, I would lean towards, if you're not using them, just selling out and buying something that's more stable I guess I'm just leery of these type of formats after seeing tiny leaders double a bunch of cards in price and then disappear in six months. And something like Legacy or Modern has been around much longer and is likely to be around much longer than a fringe format with a small but dedicated following. Yeah, I agree with you. We, we <laughs> and Both of us don't really like talking about <laughs> school. Um, and yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, Tiny Leaders was one thing, uh, but with so much of this stuff, like overlapping with the reserved list, it's kind of, 
I don't know. I never really felt good talking about it or promoting it in any way. All right. So moving on, uh, at Ord Mandrel, Adrian Camilleri, uh, Chapin has said Ferdex and Modern simply aren't viable at the moment. It's combo all the way. Do you agree? Um, I don't agree. Because <laughs> I don't consider Affinity a combo deck. So I don't know really what this is talking about. Affinity is a very strong deck list that has consistently put up great numbers and finishes. Uh, we just saw, um, um, oh my goodness, Craig Wesco uh, take a fair deck, quote-unquote, very far into a tournament. So I really don't know what this, uh, is this like a troll or? No, I think, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to assume that this quote is correct and that Chapin has actually said this. And I, I think the general sentiment is combo decks are where you want to be in modern and that oh. they're the strongest. Is that true? Okay, well, let me answer with a short story about cube drafting, which I love. So Holiday Cube is coming out on Magic Online as we speak, actually. And in Holiday Cube, this has all the Power 9, all, like, turn 1 Blightsteel Colossus, Storm decks that can kill you on turn 2. It's an incredibly powerful format. So in those, in cube drafts, there are people who build white weenie and win a draft. It does happen. But nine times out of ten, you're better off trying to build the deck that's putting Blightsteel Colossus into play on turn one or storming off on turn two than you are playing a Savannah Lions and hoping that gets there. So that's how I see modern. It's not that no fair decks are viable in any situation, but... In most situations, in most tournaments, you're going to be better off playing a unfair deck because the unfair decks are so good in that format right now. Yeah, I don't know if I... I mean, I agree with that, but I don't know what that difference is. Uh, the fair, the unfair decks are probably better, but by what percentage point? You know, I don't think that it's as wide as, you know, you get like, you know, 10 percentage points by playing an unfair deck. Uh, but you might get one or two or, you know, maybe three or four. So, you know, if you're trying to take down a tournament and you absolutely must win and you must play the best deck in the format, that's probably an unfair deck. But I still play Jund. It's fine. I can still go 4-0. It's not a problem. It's not that crazy of a difference. So, you know, I think Chapin's being a bit uh, hyperbolic there. So I don't, you know, it's not like you must take all your fair cards and burn them. Uh, uh, Go ahead. The thing is, though, as well, like, I think you're right. Like, Jund is a really good deck, but you run into the same problem as you do playing a control deck in the first week of a format. There's, if you're playing Jund or some other fair deck, there's so many unfair decks that are attacking on so many different levels. How do you, as a fair deck, prepare to beat the graveyard interactions from Grizzlebrand on turn one, but still be Burn killing you on turn three, and still be Amulet Bloom putting a Titan into play on turn two? There's, there's such a wide variety of unfair decks that are powerful. I just don't know how the fair decks, over the course of a big tournament like a GP, can fight against all those different strategies. You don't have enough sideboard slots to compete against all those different unfair strategies. Yep, I think that's true. Uh, you know, the, the way the, the fair decks do it, you know, Jund just plays all the best cards of all the colors. <laughs> so Thoughtseize, Scavenging Ooze, uh, Coligan's Command, you know, you pretty much have all the hate covered. But uh, if you look at a Jund sideboard, you're going to see it's very fragmented. It's trying to shore up all the different matchups, and there's, like, so many matchups. Uh, so, you know, it, it's the same thing as, like, aggro versus control. The aggro deck, you know, has a certain kind of advantage in that its game plan is kind of the same no matter what the environment is whereas you must tune your other decks so I, I believe that is the reason why unfair decks are pretty good right now you don't care what other people are doing you just go off 
and the fair decks, you know, have to tune and tweak their decks to try to battle whatever the room contains. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if combo is really that much better than any of the other quote-unquote fair decks. I don't know if it's where you want to be because, I mean, we have the numbers up on the site. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say that when you have Affinity taking up, like, a heavy percentage of the meta and a good, like, a good, like, running of good finishes in tournaments. So I really don't, I, I don't, I, I, I can't agree. I, I really just can't. You need to get uh, Amulet Bloom to death. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, a pretty good mean, deck. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, even then, like, Affinity, like, all right, you have your Titan out on turn two. I have my whole, like, my whole hand down on turn one or two of two. <laughs> and can your, can your Primeval Titan block my cranial plating the, you know, Etch champion. It can't, so... No, but because you're playing an almost unfair deck, if you're playing Jund, and you have to prepare for Affinity and Amulet. True. Right? Yeah, your, your yeah. 75 cards get stretched pretty thin trying to cover your bases. Right, well, I guess you have to you have to really categorize what's an actual fair deck. I mean, is Merfolk a fair deck? That that does well uh, a good amount of the time, too. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, Burn is a fair enough deck. Burn's a combo deck. I think it's basically turn four decks versus non-turn four decks. (laughs) I think think that's how you could classify, in which case you would put Affinity and Burn in the combo category versus something like Jund or UWR or something that's, you know, trying to win a game on turns eight or Yeah, because here I am, I'm thinking like combo, like Ad Nauseam, Storm, like the Grizzle brand deck, and, you know, I'm not really seeing like... A lot of top tier finishes for them, uh, you know, consistently. So like, uh, if you worded it like the way you did, Richard, I would yeah. totally agree with you. Like Twin, Infect, Tron, Affinity, all those things can just kill you. <laughs> like if yeah. you tap out on turn four. So I would put them in the unfair category. In which yeah. case, a lot of them are at you know the top decks of the format. Right. So but, if it was worded the way you said it, Richard, definitely. But there are decks that can deal with it, or at least struggle through and try to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so from, uh, at Scheitzvi, uh, will they have to start reprinting walkers in regular sets now that there are no core sets? How will this affect prices? Wait. Uh, yes, they will reprint. If they're going to reprint a Planeswalker, like the original Win 5, for example, they will have to be in an expert level set now. I assume they will still reprint some amount of Planeswalkers, and the main difference will be the core set has been kind of the home for Planeswalker reprints. Now it's more likely they will be kind of scattered around through the sets, one here and one there, whenever it fits into the flavor of the set or the world that we happen to be visiting at the time or the plane. So I don't think it does much to the prices though, really. I don't I don't see what difference it would really make if it's reprinted in a core set compared to another random set. I don't think we're gonna see a reprint like a like a straight up Garak Wildspeaker, Garrick Wildspeaker and like a set like Battle for Zendikar. I think those will now be delegated to supplemental products or uh like a conspiracy type set or something like that. I don't know if we'll see them in like an actual regular set. They don't really they, they've never really done that before. It's always been, like, new walkers. Like, like if they were going to print, like, a Chandra, it's always, like, a really a new Chandra. I don't ever think we'll see, like, Chandra Nolar or any other iteration of Chandra in a regular set again. 
Yeah, I wow. think I agree with that because they they use the walkers in the uh, expert level expansions to tell a story. Yeah, and using the old walker is kind of hard to do that. So I think seeing them in supplemental products and and things like that is where they'll likely be. Yeah, like dual decks, commander product, uh, modern masters, like all that kind of stuff. There's what plenty a, of real estate for that. The the other thing to consider is they've already told us that half of the the blocks will be new blocks and half will be return blocks. So does the fact that we're going to be getting two sets that are return sets every year change your mind at all? Like, does Shadows over Innistrad mean that Liliana of the Veil could be in standard because it fits? No. Mm-hmm. I don't... I, I think they would just print a new Liliana to continue on, like Richard said, the storyline. As I... Yeah, I don't think they would just straight up reprint Liliana the Veil and Garrick um, the Veil Curse. What was the flip one? Relentless. 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 I think it would just literally be two new walkers. Yeah, like they're not going back in time. They're going back to a plane, and hopefully the characters have developed. You know. Yeah. So they're gonna add more colors and weird abilities and things. So, so I don't think so. But you never know. They they might just straight up throw Liliana in there because that's the perfect place for a reprint. Right. I, I guess we'll tell with the new set. Right, because the the next after oath will be the the new block where the whole magic origins cadence is in full effect. So I, I guess that'll give us a preview of things to come. Yes. Uh, last question. Dance BZ Dance Brandon N on Twitter. What's the ceiling price wise for foil KTK fetches? Hundred fifty to two hundred percent of their current price. Will when will they be optimal to sell? This is this one's kind of tricky. I think I looked at the prices of a couple of them uh, preparing for the cast, and they're like fifty to seventy-five dollars now, based on yeah. what I was seeing. So I think that doubling up in price over the long term definitely isn't impossible. And as far as the right time to sell, it is right before there's another Fetchland reprinting, basically. Like, hold them as long as possible, but if you hold them too long and they announce that they're reprinting the Fetches again, then you're kind of stuck because there's new supply. But until there's another reprinting, they're the kind of cards that should just keep slowly going up in value. The wild card is the Expeditions, and if that takes away from the foil demand of the regular printing, so that's the wild card, and I'm really not sure how that's going to shake out. If people are going to choose to buy expeditions over the ktk foils or if some people are going to still want the ktk foils because they like them better than the expeditions i i would if i had to choose that's the direction i would go uh seth uh, as well uh i would be choosing the expeditions over the pack foils um and i'm I'm sure a lot of other people will do that too and it, it is definitely the wild card but i would if i had to guess they would reprint the pack like you know, pack uh, fetch lands and having like another go at like pack foils rather than reprinting expeditions, if that makes sense. Like the like the first scenario would likely happen before they reprint expeditions straight up. Yeah, that seems likely that the the KTK fetches are more likely to be reprinted than the expedition foils. Right, because like I don't know if they would, but they could easily just get thrown into another modern masters product. And again, you would have another chance at like pack foils just from like modern masters this time. So I just, I don't really know. I don't think they really want to have fetches in standard for a while, especially that since the battle for Zendikar lands are in standard right now. So that will be way after they're, you know, out of standard. So that's definitely the only timetable we'll see at, uh, for a, um, uh, 
fetch land reprint. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's weird because it's like it's the same thing with like shock lands. I mean, but you know, fetch lands have a wider range of where they see play. Uh, but I mean, the pack foils shouldn't. I don't know. It, they don't have as much of a danger at getting reprinted, but it could still happen more so than the expeditions. I would say. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's more likely, but I think it'll be a while. And yeah, the the good news is if there are random like event deck or some supplemental product, even commander deck reprintings, those likely won't be foil. At least they never have been. So the foils are safer than the non foils. And then the expeditions are even safer than the KTK foils. Right, right. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, that so that's, that. that's, yeah. that's all the fish mail we have for this week. Thank you, for awesome. everyone, for sending them in. Yes, thank you very much. Um, is there anything else we really wanted to talk about? I think we hit everything. I think this uh, wraps up this episode. So, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, everyone, for sending in those those fish mail, they're always really fun to answer. Hopefully we got to answer, um, you know, you got the answer you were, you were looking for. Uh, we really tried to emphasize these and give you all really good answers. Um, anything else out the door, gentlemen? Nope, it's time to go watch Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> we're oh. recording this on Wednesday, so this will be posted oh. after Star Wars is released. Oh, man. If I, if I really see any kind of – talk about leaks – <laughs> I think uh I think these Star Wars leaks uh supersede any <laughs> leak that uh we got from from Wizards. So I could care less about spoilers from Oath of the Gatewatch. If I see some spoilers for Star Wars, uh yeah, I think a lot of people will be very very upset. <laughs> so I think we can end on that note. <laughs> um hopefully you all enjoy Star Wars. Uh I'm interested to see uh are you both going to see it? Seth, come on, you have to go see it. Sunday, I'm going Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Not you opening, hit that? Not opening yeah. night, but I am going. My brother's going hit... to town, so we're going to oh, watch great. it together. Great. Is there anyone who's not going to see Star Wars? Like, that just uh, baffles yeah. my mind. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's unheard of. I'm definitely seeing it. I will definitely be hitting the uh, these the the Seth strategy of seeing it a few days after. Hit that like. Uh, Old people matinee, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. Four, four no thirty one... Sunday. Four thirty Sunday. I'll be there. <laughs> no one in the theater. Just get it all to myself. Maybe a few people in there, but uh, I uh, I do not want to get crammed in there like a sardine. I think you get crammed in there on Sunday regardless. <laughs> I probably. think it's gonna be crazy for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, probably, probably. Uh, but yeah, um, that'll end this uh, this uh, episode. Uh, again, thank you for everyone, and we will see you next time. This is the crew signing out. Enjoy Star Wars. Uh, we will see you next time.